0: Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast show, a podcast that helps foster respect through inclusion, service, and equity. Today, we have Ron Harvey, who is the VP of Global Core Strategies and Consulting Services, leadership expert, and life coach, as well as Stacey Haggerty, IPX Global Director of ENI. Guys, welcome to the Envision Rise show.
1: Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having us, Chris. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. I'm here. Ron Harvey, the uh, vice president and the uh, chief operating officer of Global Core Strategies. We're on a leadership firm, and we primarily focus on creating a winning culture by developing leaders from emotional intelligence to critical thinking to creating a conversation that everyone's a part of and all about inclusivity and making sure that everybody feels they have a place in the workforce. And so we spend a lot of time, and our motto is people always matter. Um, so and that's super important. And I've learned that from serving in the military for over 21 years, coming from an all-Black community, um, and just wanting to do things that were bigger than me, and that makes a difference for other people. So it's just an honor. I'm looking forward to the conversation with Stacey. And so looking forward to diving in, Stacey.
0: All right. And I'm Stacey Hegarty. I'm the Global Director of Equity and Inclusion for IPX. Ron, thank you for being our first external guest on the Envision Rise podcast. And I have to say, I'm very excited about this conversation. You and I have known each other for a couple of years now. And every conversation I have with you, I walk away with something to think about, something to ponder. So I'm hoping that our audience can also walk away with the same experience. So let's get started. How did you get into coaching from a life in the military to coaching?
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, phenomenal question. Before I probably knew what I was doing. I started doing some of the behavior really in high school where friends would come to me and ask me how to solve some of the problems or figure out how to navigate or how to even just graze in school. And so I was that guy that was just really mild-mannered and people like trusted me for some reason without any credentials that I knew what I was talking about. But it turned into you know, going in the military and still stand on that same path of helping other people get better at who they wanted to be in life. And it always gravitated towards helping people. And so from that space, you know, in the military, I learned to coach because part of leadership in the military is you have to coach. It's required and they call it counseling, but it's really coaching. And you're required to learn how to do that really, really effectively as you go up the ladder of success. So I think I naturally gravitated towards it because I enjoy helping people and a part of helping people is being able to come alongside them.
0: So how do you know when you've been successful coaching somebody? I think it's, uh, that was one question you asked me early on in our relationship, that how do you know when you've been successful at something? And I think about that all the time when I'm setting goals and thinking about projects. So how do you
1: know? Yeah, for me personally, I never make it about me. And so it's not about how much better I get at whatever it is or smarter I get or money that I make. You know, when I consider it, success for me is did the person that was counting on me get better is where I tap into my level of success. And so the people that are counting on me, that are trusting in me and are and striving for their goals. So I use that in all aspects of my life. So with my kids, if I'm a good parent, that means my kids are doing better. If I'm a good husband, that means that my wife is being able to achieve the things she wants to achieve in my community. So I always attribute it back to, you know, my legacy is did the people that counted on me, did they get better? Are they achieving their dreams? Are they showing up the way they want to show up? So it's never about, I want to be known as the smartest or the brightest in the room. And people will give you those accolades. And sometimes I think it makes you arrogant and cocky and allows you not to be approachable and accessible. So I'm really mindful of no matter how much people think I bring to the table, my success is measured by how good they become.
0: Who do you coach most, do you think? In a professional setting, obviously, as a parent, you're constantly coaching your kids, but who are the people you're interacting with the most, do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it's 50 50. I would say I coach more African Americans than any other race. And then it's split down the middle between men and women. And the reason for that is corporate America, there's not a lot of black male certified coaches. And so when someone wants to be coached, if they're in an organization or a corporation, most of them request someone that looks like them, someone that can understand their journey. So I get a lot of requests because there's not a lot of African American male coaches that are certified with a military background, you know, that's running an organization that's been successful at it. And so I get a lot of requests simply because I'm a black guy that has a certification as a coach. And so, and there are black leaders that are asking for people like me.
0: Let's talk about that piece a little bit. How do you go about coaching, for instance, a black man differently than you may coach a white man in similar roles with similarly placed organizations? Is that something that you are extremely mindful of, or is it something that is just sort of a byproduct of your relationship with them?
1: Yeah, I mean, phenomenal question. There's not a big distinction between the two because of the role that I play as a coach. You know, the one role I play as a coach, regardless of the race or the gender, even though they see it different and they enter it different and they have some expectations and they want to have someone that they're familiar with. As a coach, I always practice to meet people where they are, and so I don't have to be where they are in their life and walk in that pathway with them. Even though some people will want me to have walked in their shoes, I personally think the best way I serve as a coach, regardless whether it's a white male or an African American or a black male is how do I not bring my baggage to the table? Because coaching is about their growth. Coaching is about their experience. Coaching is about what they want to get out of it. Coaching is, you know, one of the questions I ask is what do they need to take away from the conversation, not what I bring to the conversation. So I always leave my carry-on luggage, if you will, at bay. So I don't bring my personal stuff to the table, regardless of who I'm working with, because your biases can make you ineffective. And so there's not a distinction for me, but definitely is a distinction for them. But the way that I separate the two is I just meet them wherever they are and listen to their story and their experiences. And I go from there.
0: What about the people who aren't sure where they are? I think that would be a really big challenge in what you're doing, because so many of us walk around. We think we know where we are, but we don't. How do you get them there?
1: What has been effective for me in my space is really creating a container for them to figure it out. That's safe that's non-judgmental. that's non-biased, it doesn't make them feel like they have to have the answer because there's some really talented, educated people that have risen to the corporate ladder that still are trying to figure some things out. And they can't say that in open public because they're expected to have the answer or all the answers sometimes. But when they're in coaching, they get a chance to really just be Ron. They don't have to be the VP or the COO or the director. They can just be Ron coming into a conversation to have a real conversation and I've worked really hard not to be judgmental. And people say, how do you get there? I say a lot of practice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I need to engage you with some coaching for that, for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So l- let's talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing with black people and other people of color in leadership spaces. What are some of the unique challenges that they're faced with now?
1: Yeah, I think this is a perfect topic, you know, for all of us to have this morning, you know, before I came on with you to do this podcast. You know, I was doing an entire, if you will, workshop for a uh, Politico. And they're in that space of reporting the news, but they want to have the same conversation you and I are having. And so when you're sitting down, you're working with an African-American or black person about where they are and some of the challenges. The challenges are different. But the goal is still the same regardless of race. Everybody wants a place they can raise their family, a place where they feel included, a place where they feel valued, a place where they feel heard. So we, regardless of race, we all have a lot of similarities about what we want out of this thing that we call life. A lot of similarities. How we get to it and what our obstacles are are different. And so when I'm sitting down, I'm talking to an African-American or a black person that's in leadership, specifically men they want to figure out for them the most important thing is how do I show up based on what the environment is saying and how do I get to be me? How do I show up authentic? Because organizations will say, I want you to bring your whole self to work. I don't think that's actually accurate right now. I've noticed where they'll say, I want you to bring your whole self to work. So if an African American came in with dreads or if they came in with some slang in their language, Mm -hmm. then there's this thing of, we need you to have executive presence. And that your hair, or the way you dress, or what you wear. And I've been, I've had clients I had to say, Hey, you may have to tone it down how you dress. You may have to tone it down to how you get excited, which looks like it's intimidating. And so, all those things of what, if they bring their natural self to the work, can make some people feel they're aggressive. Or if they're advocating for black people, then it's all of a sudden, if they're advocating for black people, they don't like white people. So, they got to balance that. And so, The one thing that's amazing for when I'm coaching a Black person is that they've worked so hard to fit into the white culture, but the white culture hasn't worked so hard to figure out the Black people. And so that's a conflict for when I'm coaching a Black person. It's like, man, I'm working my butt off to help to understand the white population, the white culture, or the rules that govern that. But no one's spending that much time to understand me.
0: Let's talk about that some more. How can white colleagues show up better to support their friends, their family, their colleagues of color? And not place that expectation of assimilation into white professionalism, because I do think that that is a space where white people need to be doing a better job of having those tough conversations with one another, looking at the way their policies and procedures and cultures at work and in their personal lives are creating those expectations. So what can white people be doing better to be I, allies, I don't necessarily love that term, but again for lack of a better word, allies advocates, co-conspirators
1: yeah, and I'm okay with whatever language we have to use for people to get it so they can be more involved. If ally has to be used for them to say I'm engaged, I'm totally okay with that I mean I'm modify the language for it what I really want is their behavior I want their engagement, I want their support you know so whatever word we use, what is important is for white people to realize that we do need them to be a part of the change? I mean, white people were part of the policy and if white people are part of the policies that are slowing down the process, then it's unfair to expect you not to be a part of changing the policy. So the first thing I think we got to do is step back and say, what policies have been put in place? Almost like undercover boss, sometimes the leader makes his choice and it goes south on the organization. Even when you look at testing for African-American kids that's in schools with less resources, less access to Wi-Fi, less money in the school. But we give them the same exact test as a kid that has all of that stuff. And then we want them to compete at a level that they can get into the schools that, quote unquote, says it's the school you need to get your kids in. You know, I think it's so-
0: showing up a lot right now, uh, given the circumstances of the last year or so. I think something that COVID did bring out in very bright lights is it's not equal.
1: Yes, yes. And I think what white people can help do is not get angry when the conversation gets uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think people think that in order for me to love black people, I got to hate white people. And that's not what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. I'm saying that what's wrong with me loving my culture? What's wrong with me loving my race? It's almost as though I can't love both. So it's like you got to straddle the fence and don't. I think white people can also help us by being an advocate, being a champion for what needs to be get done. Because what happens when I get into corporate America? It's a tough spot. The black community saying, hey, you've made it then you got to be a voice for us. And I'm okay with that, but I don't think it's just my role. Mm -hmm. I don't think I have to be the only spokesperson or the primary spokesperson. In the Black community, when I speak, it's almost as though the white community says, oh, he spoke for all the Black people. One Mm -hmm. of the only populations that that happens in is that when a Black person speaks, if a white person speaks, they don't automatically say, oh, he spoke for all the white men. He spoke for all the white women. You know, that's not, but in the Black community, that's almost known. They find the one Black person that can be articulate, that can be calm, that can be respectful and say, let's get him to interview because he speaks for all the black people. So people that I listen to, I'm not speaking for all the black people. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking for my experiences as a black man. And I've had a wealth of experiences and so have probably 60% of black men have had the same experience. So yeah, some of it you will relate to and they'll say, spot on, Ron, you said the right thing. You're exactly right. I've gone through that. So I'm speaking from the experiences that I've had in the encounters and the stories I've had an opportunity to hear from other black men as well.
0: So tell me about what happens when Black men make it to that CEO role. They make it to the boardroom. They make it to the C-suite. You mentioned how there are different expectations. Talk to me about that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of pressure at the C-suite once you make it as a Black man. Some are spoken and some are not spoken. You know, I serve on several boards. And so when I'm in the C-suite, you know, I have to ask all the time when I am walking into that room. One of the first things I always ask when I'm walking into a room as a successful Black man in business, am I going to be the only one in the room? That's a question I ask myself to every major room I walk in, mm-hmm. no matter what room it is that I'm going in. And if so, how do I open the door for other people? But also, how do I get the people in the room to not look at me as the token black guy? So that's a challenge for me. It's being the token one, and not because they hear my voice. And so, they diversity is there, but they don't include or they don't really. You know, it's like I have to be an expert at everything, which becomes a challenge when you're in that room. Like, okay, well, you're the one here, and you got to have all the answers for. Where are we missing the mark? So I think when you become an executive as a black person, there's a lot of pressure from both sides. There's a lot of pressure on how I have to show up and get it right and not make any mistake. I mean, absolutely none. And so that expectation is unrealistic. So I can't make any mistake, so I get marginalized really, really quick. And if I make one mistake, the black community is looking like, you made it and you made one mistake. You, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're done because I only get to make one mistake. And that's a lot of pressure regardless of what color you are. But I can tell you that that's I live through that every single time when I'm in the boardroom is even as I own a company. If I make one mistake, my company is all of a sudden a bad company. But someone of another race can make that mistake and they get an opportunity to rebound without being labeled as a bad company.
0: Let's talk about black-owned companies for a minute. You and I were having a conversation a few days ago about these certifications for black-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, and on the surface that seems like it might be a good thing, but you brought up another point that I think we need to talk about. So tell me about what your experience has been. I know you kind of went through the certification for your own company. Is it good? Is it harmful? Where are we on this?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at, I think it was started for a legitimate reason. You know, if you look at Wells Fargo, they got in trouble for saying we can't find enough black people to put in Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. No, open mouth, insert foot, because if you can't find a place for me to work, but you can find a place for me to deposit my money. We have a problem with that. You know, so that really is a horrible statement that leader made for that organization. And so what's happened in the business arena where all the certifications is companies were saying, hey, we want to hire minority owned or women owned companies. But we can't find enough of them that are qualified, that are certified, that can really do the job. I still hear that in this 2021. That's still a statement. You know, we can't find enough black-owned companies when 41% are disappearing because we can't get the financial resources and the financial backing. It's harder for me to get capital, access to capital for black companies. There's, it's probably a triple standard. You know, I can walk in. You know, my personal experience. And when we started our company, Stacy, we went after a loan for a major contract that we want to compete for. And it required us to have so much capital set aside. And I went to a bank where I have good credit, good reputation, good relationship, and was told no by that bank. And they couldn't validate why I was told no for a, not a significant loan. I mean, that I can go and really do that loan without any collateral. But they said no. And, And one of the people pulled me aside at the bank and say, hey, I'm not sure why you're not getting approved, but I'm going to connect you with another friend of mine that works at another bank and you'll get approved. I say, is it that you can't say why or you're ashamed of saying why? I said, because everything else all equal. I don't know why we're not approved either. And I went to the other bank and it was approved in two weeks. And so when you look at black owned companies, the certification says, came in place, say we can't find enough black owned companies. So what's some people that did that made it smartest? Well, let's vet them. Let us get them ready. Let us get them prepped up. It's almost like you're not ready for college and they send you to a prep school mm-hmm. to get ready so you can pass the ACTs or the SATs and, and just get your stuff together for college. I get that. So what we're told as black business owners or women business owners or minority business owners, we're going to run you through these certification programs. So we're going to check all your finances. We're going to check your business acumen. We're going to check your mission statement and your vision statement. We're going to confirm that you are a legit, solid business. So you can stop being told that we can't find you. We're going to help you get certified to say we have a whole database of them. Perfect. That's so we can get 10 percent of the opportunities. So we go through all of these challenges and proving that we're good. To get access to probably 10 to 15%, which is what most diversity suppliers are saying. We're gonna give 10 to 15% to black owned businesses. Most companies will say that. If you go pull records, our goal is to hit 15 to 20% of black owned businesses to, to allow them to have access to it. Here's the challenge that I struggle with as a black owned business the white male, the only person that doesn't have to go through these certifications is the white male. So I can have a white male sitting next to me with no certifications. That actually gets to compete, and I've proven myself. So it's almost as though the white male gets a pass that all their stuff is straight, but I got to go through a certification to prove that I'm legit. I don't know where the disconnect is. And I think it started off as a good reason. So I'm certified and I continue to stay certified and I'm going to continue. So I want to have a a way into the room. But I think it's time to relook that policy and say, where are we disenfranchising people? Because it almost seems like a process of disenfranchisement now, because the white man doesn't have to do that stuff.
0: Yeah, that was a conversation that I thought about a lot in the days following our discussion, that something that was likely well-intentioned at the outset has now had this impact of not being as equitable. It's not creating the equity that I hope it was intended to create. Yes. I see that happen in organizations as well. That's something that a hiring process or a policy was put in place that they thought was going to attract a more diverse candidate pool or uh, be helpful in helping people move up the ladder quicker within the organization. And it really ends up placing an extra burden onto people or departments or companies who are already burdened.
1: Yes. And I think that policy would be better if everybody had to be certified. I mean, (laughs) if we are going to say, let's make sure that you're certified then let's make sure that whoever is in front of you, they've gone through the same vetting process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like when we're back in the days when we're trying to get African-Americans to vote. Black people had to take a test. White people didn't. Mm-hmm. Like to automatically assume that, that every white person knew how to read, write and spell. That was an assumption. That was a privilege that was given because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And so now, in business arena, if we look at this, are we automatically given a, a pass or privilege because it's a white male? Their business, I got some white males that can use some of the same certifications and training that I go through.
0: <laughs> I think I know a few of them too that would be <laughs> helped by that.
1: <laughs> I would it has made me a better business owner. It mm-hmm. has made me smarter. It has helped me get my stuff together. And I love that because I had to learn when I started my company, I had to learn the business side of it. And so it really has been super helpful. So when people look at it and they hear this, I don't want them to think I'm not grateful or appreciate that I've learned a lot. I just wanted to be fair that if I step next to a white guy that owns a business, just like mine, all things equal, I don't want him to get a pass for being legit. I want him mm-hmm. to go through the same thing. So when we're standing there, then it's about our performance and not about our record.
0: Well, I want to ask one last question. And the question is, what couple of one thing, couple of things do you think would be the most impactful for All the businesses out there that are truly, honestly saying, we want a more diverse workforce. We want a more inclusive place for people to come 40 hours a week. What are some of the things that they can do now to help make that happen?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with what you and I are doing now is have the conversation and get feedback from the people that you're trying to be a part of your organization and meet them where they are. Ask, really want to do it, have the conversation. And they're going to be awkward when you first start because you've never had them before. And so awkward doesn't mean impossible and it doesn't mean it can't be done. But be willing to be in an awkward position or have an awkward conversation to make your organization better. You know, so if you're running a business, you're a business owner, you have to understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a profitable thing to do. Period versus it's a nice thing to do. And I think for a while it's a nice thing to do and it feels good. And I want to feel good, but I also don't, I don't want to feel good and be broke. <laughs> so I get it. I want it to feel good, but if you make me feel good, but yet I'm still not getting promoted, I'm not getting pay raises, you're not doing business with me, but you said the right thing to caress my feelings. That's not what I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. I think business owners, whether it's black, white, Hispanic, Latino, lesbian, gay, bisexual, all those things, make sure that your video matches your audio. Make sure that you're doing business with everybody. Make sure that you're advocating for something bigger than yourself. What do you truly believe in? And what are some things that we've all learned from people that love us that we need to stop doing because it's no longer effective? All of us have some things that we've learned from our family, that we learned from our ancestors, that we've learned in our churches, or we've learned in some history books, or somewhere we've learned it. And now we look at it and it's not as good as, as we thought it was. And it's not as accurate as what we were taught or led to believe. Challenge your own thoughts, your own behaviors, your own interactions. When's the last time you had, and it's COVID now, but before COVID, when's the last time you had at your own home a diverse group of people eating dinner? And most people will stop like, because most of us invite people that look like us, walk like us, talk like us, eat what we eat. When's the last time you had at your own dinner table, you were the minority at the table in your house having dinner with everybody else that wasn't like you at your house?
0: Well, now I'm ready for COVID to be over and have a bunch of people over for dinner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they won't be happy with my cooking.
1: <laughs> we order out. We'll be fine. Say so order what they like. That's a deep conversation because most of us haven't done that. Most of us haven't done it. We'll meet people out for lunch, but when you allow them into your environment mm-hmm. to see, because people learn about it. when you come to my house, if you come for Christmas, I got black Santas everywhere. I mean, I collect them. And so when people say, what do we get wrong for Christmas? I buy him a black Santa. He loves them because it allows me to be authentic to me because my Santa all my life was a black person. My mom and my dad were black. So Santa wasn't white for me. And so I don't want to portray that Santa was white. You know, whether you believe in Christmas or not, I do like Christmas. So I wanted it to look like around my house, the people that made Christmas real for me.
0: Now I know what to get you for Christmas. I love that. Yes. <laughs> I said the last question was the last one. I lied a little bit.
1: Well, I'm loving the interview. Oh, this is great.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that I hear a lot in, in my own network, which is usually white moms in Denver, that we just don't know how to expand our circles very well. That unless you are, Working in a diverse environment or you happen to live in a diverse neighborhood, you get into your echo chamber and you get in your bubble and the best intentioned people in the world still are doing a pretty bad job of expanding their circle. What are some concrete ways? And this is obviously assuming when we get past COVID, when it's easier to go meet people where they are. What, what would you encourage people to do to expand their circle?
1: Yeah, I will find events and things that are taking place that makes me the minority. Initially, I do that intentionally because I know that I had to be at the table. But me seeking those opportunities out. Educated me and expanded my view and my visions on what the world was really like. I grew up in an all black community. So the person that you see sitting in front of you today is not the community that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. I grew up in an all black community. I've become appreciative of a very diverse community. Because I knew it was healthy. I knew it was better. I knew I needed to be able to introduce myself and everybody else that I loved to a diverse population. So be super intentional about where you are, who you're with, and make coffees, even virtually. I have coffees with people of all different backgrounds now. And I'll tell them, hey, why do you really want to talk to me? I say, because I don't know enough about this particular thing that you represent. Whether it's a woman or whether it's someone is lesbian, gay, bisexual, whether it's, you know, someone that's Catholic or whether it's someone is black or Hispanic, you know, I, put myself in those places and say, hey, I don't know enough about this. You know, We put our daughter in a a Spanish tutoring thing with one of the business leaders here that teaches Spanish. And my daughter's like, hey, I want to learn Spanish. So I put her in and I started following along and let her get immersed into the the Spanish population so she can understand it. I'm super intentional about putting myself and the people around me in places that are not like them at all. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing I can do. And then value. Other people and you'll wanna you don't add value to what you don't value. The reason you and I get along great is because I value who you are, so it's easy for me to add value to you. Most people, if you don't value something, Stacy, it's hard to put value into it. It becomes almost impossible because you don't care about it. You'll go through the motions, but you're not gonna put a lot of investment into it. Decide what you value. And if you value it, let us see your behavior. Don't Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay. Won the Super Bowl, first year in Tampa Bay. But Tom Brady doesn't talk a lot of stuff.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He just does it. Leadership, this inclusion thing is going to be about the work now. We already have a lot of policies and a lot got to be rewritten. But for us to have diversity training will not change what we're trying to change. What's going to change is you and I actually sitting at the table and going back to your loved ones and my loved ones and all the people that we know in our circles that need to be broken up and say, no, that's not accurate. We can't say that. So in my house, the N-word is not a word that we use. It's not acceptable. Hold your loved ones accountable because most of us are trying to hold people accountable outside of our houses, but we won't even hold people accountable in our houses. I think
0: sometimes the people closest to us are the ones that are hardest for us to hold accountable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 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 And you got to see them every day, but if you can get, you know, I had to help my mom shift, my family shift, you know, I grew up in an all black community. And so, if you can do that, the rest of the world becomes easier to have a conversation with. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Ron, I think we're at the end of our time. Uh, yeah. I Thank you so much for joining us today. I do want to have you back so we can continue these conversations. Mm-hmm. I just uh, I, I think you have so much great insight to share with all of your experiences. And I uh, hope to bring on your lovely wife, Linda, at some point yes. so she and I yes. can have a yes. conversation uh, too. <laughs>
1: yes. She'll be prepping. So her questions, you'll send her in advance, but she's a phenomenal story. This means a lot to me simply because it's in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a second cousin that marched with Dr. King. That's how important this is.
0: Literally in your DNA. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ron. If anyone would like to reach out to Ron Harvey, we will include the website for Global Core Strategies. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at Stacy S-T-A-C-I at IPXHQ.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as a one-off initiative. And so with your help, we can get this message to more people. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.